Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Jim Gildy. Jim is the founder, managing director and owner of Rubbish Clearance and Waste Removal Limited, a waste removal services company based in Hampshire. Jim, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Good morning and thank you for inviting me onto the show. It's a real pleasure having you, Jim. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19 and governments, businesses having to really feel their way through this unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within your industry, how has it been adapting to the last few weeks and months because i can imagine it has posed a few tremendous challenges it has um for my business in particular my waste removal business is uh, slightly different than most of those out there in 2015 i myself trained with the national academy of crime scene cleaners um overseen by ultimate environmental as a specialist cleaner and as such, since then, I've um, been prepared and actively working on uh, emergency situations as and when tasked for infection prevention and control, everything from MRSA to um, HIV, hepatitis B situations. Yeah, so I was geared up um, for infection prevention control and responding to that in an emergency situation. However, I wasn't prepared or no one was prepared for the sheer volume of work that initially come in. And to me, that was a surprise. It wasn't It wasn't the fact that we were dealing with it because we were all good to go. It was just a sheer volume of work when we're talking about the end of February and through the beginning of March. But as far as leadership goes, I've got to say that I myself running a COVID-19 response team, as we have been doing, um, on behalf of Ultima Environmental, we've had brilliant leadership, we've had brilliant training, um, we've had no equipment issues, and we've had lots of uh, first-class communication and guidance, and it's been absolutely spot on. And it's it's difficult, really, when I've seen all the criticism and heard all the criticism and various um, opinions about leadership, which I've got to say... I think the leadership of every country in the world has had a very difficult balancing act to do with the healthcare of the nation and the economic situation. But on a purely practical implementation of infection prevention and control, I've had first-class oversight myself as a responder and for the business. So that's been absolutely great. But... You know, um, a few years ago, um, two or three years ago, there was a there was a test run for I think it was in the Sunday Telegraph a few uh, a few weeks ago. There was a test run basically for the emergency service for a pandemic situation, and basically that report um, I think it was codenamed Exercise Sickness. And yeah, looking at my notes, it's October two thousand sixteen. Now. The results on that apparently said that basically the nation wasn't prepared for a pandemic situation. Now that was that was um, an exercise conducted three years ago, and it's quite it's quite baffling why now when we have actually had a pandemic, and 
the lessons learned from that exercise were not taken, you know, they were not heeded, and we still have had a lack of PPE and critical care beds and etc. Um, it, seems, it seems to be a case. What's the point of running an exercise if you don't take up the lessons you learn from it? And an important part of leadership, of course, Jim, is learning from one's mistakes, isn't it? And it does beg the question as to yeah. why the lessons from that exercise, as you say, weren't heeded. And as a consequence, we have suffered during this uh, period because of that, despite how well business has done to keep itself just ticking over during this time. Yeah, exactly. And it, seem, it seems to be a case that, uh, and this is from... Uh, a slightly uninformed point of view on the bigger scale of things, but it seems to be the case that we react as a nation and as a government seems to react to the crisis and and and, and put their least amount of cash into into the different various crisis scenarios instead of being actively spending money to be prepared for them in advance, which in the long run, I know you can't spend money and be prepared for every type of crisis coming out across the board, but a pandemic was quite, with SARS and MERS, and go back to 1917, Spanish flu, um, and all that sort of stuff coming through, you, you know, you've got to be prepared for it. You've got to be, this is one of the things you have got to be prepared for in some way, shape, and form, and we just weren't. We had warning signs coming along, and we've had an exercise um, that showed we weren't prepared, and basically nothing was done about that. The lessons weren't learned, and I find that quite shocking. It's really brought the proactive approach versus reactive approach into the limelight, hasn't it? And one good example yeah. of that is um, the timing of the uh, the lockdown that people are picking out. Because if you look at the Italians, for example, their lockdown began as early as March the 9th. And we didn't follow suit until the 23rd of that month. So we were still playing a little bit more of a laissez-faire approach, let's say, until we then imposed those harsher measures. Um, so... As a business leader, uh, Jim, I suppose you're very much in favour when difficulties arise. You jump in, you get on top of them as soon as possible, as opposed to just sitting back, letting yeah, things get play it, out. Get in, get in early, um, as, as well as, you know, getting early instead of, you know, let's see what develops and then react um, at the last possible minute. It's, you know, it seems to be the wrong approach. In the same way as a response team, on some occasions, some of the clients we work for um, in the early in the earlier part of this pandemic had a attitude of let's wait and see if we've had personnel um, that come up positive in, on testing instead of when they've got someone they suspect that might have COVID-19 instead of reacting then waiting for the three-day window as it was at the time I think for the testing mm. They've, they've potentially interacted with lots more people. Um, and so rather than shutting it down just in case or waiting until it was confirmed, then isolating that person is a massive difference. It's a massive difference in the spread of, and transmission of infection. Mm, exactly, because back then, of course, the R rate was uh, much, much higher than it is now. Yeah, and um, yeah. just speaking of staff, while we're on that topic, Jim, how have uh, the staff at your business actually found it sort of conducting themselves and dealing with this uh, because um, we've heard a great deal of stories of uh, people really going above and beyond during this period whether they've had to continue working or whether they've had to adapt to working remotely and I can imagine with the amount of work that you've had to take on during this period that it's been similar for yourselves as well well yeah I mean on February the 13th I come back from um, holiday I always take them in the earlier part of the year when it's quieter and as I come through at Heathrow Airport 
uh, I got the phone call to go to a job in Surrey, and that was a suspected presence of COVID-19, and that was February the 13th, I believe. Um, and since then, myself and my team have been living in an isolated bubble, shall we say, where um, we try to isolate ourselves as much as possible from the general public. And everywhere we go, basically, in the vehicles, going to jobs, one of us has had a mask on at all times and gloves, etc., so you know, to protect each other from inhaling any infectious material, um, taking temperatures, uh, we're using the forehead thermometers. And we've, ha- we've had to adapt our lifestyle to basically live like that all the time. Um, and that was from a lot earlier than that coming from, you know, the guidance coming from the general public. We've done that from the word go as we've been dealing with infection prevention and control. We're geared up to do that. So as soon as this started, we went into that mode. And it's been, you know, it's been, it's been quite challenging. It's been quite lonely. It's, um, it's been something we never expected to do on this scale. But at the same time, it's something we have done quite successfully at work and in our personal lives and we've been infection free and we've had no problems so far. Mm. It's certainly uh, good to uh, hear that that's uh, been positive and I understand as well that you discussed in the Parliamentary Review article you put together, Indispensable Guide to Best Practice of course, that you were quite hopeful for the future prior to the uh, pandemic breaking out and given how busy you've been I can imagine that that's still very much the case, the future seems quite bright for yourselves at this point. Well, on the business-wise, um, business-wise, the company and ourselves, yeah, we've had no problems at all. We've, we've been working flat out through the COVID-19 um, pandemic, and we can't see that ending anytime soon. So as the business goes, yeah, I'm very hopeful for the future. Everything's going absolutely fine. Obviously, working in this crisis situation and being, able, being a response team, as, um, being leader of a response team and providing response services is the, the future for the foreseeable future looks great business wise. Um, in another way for the planet, I would I would hope the future would involve taking this taking this break from normality. I would, I would like to hope that on a world level that things will change for the better instead of going back to going back to the normal run of business. You know, world leaders will take the opportunity to change things where they can. Mm. And I think there has been a renewed focus on sustainability as well as mental health and well-being during this time. So that's incredibly important to carry forward. Um, human beings are, of course, creatures of habit. So hopefully we don't sort of phase back in and forget that. But as well as that, I mean, the experience of crisis management in this sense, it's going to really empower those that are running businesses at this time and breed resilience as well. So those businesses that are making it through, there are some real positives to take in that sense as well, aren't there? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, every industry. Uh, I should imagine every person on the planet and every industry obviously is going to have to adapt and change the way they work. But at the same time, the government guidance coming out is is across all sectors of industry and business. So there will be a lot of education going on, a lot of courses being undertaken. There's a great there's a great um, learning curve going on there about infection prevention and control and indeed throughout the whole healthcare sector. So. No, I've got good hopes for the future because the knowledge out there, um, the, the knowledge out there is just about this subject is just immense compared to what it was previous to February in this country. And if we do think about what the uh, the next year or so holds for yourself and for the uh, the business, Jim, what do you envision as we move through the pandemic and hopefully emerge from it? And what do you also hope to achieve as we look toward the long term? 
as I hope to achieve, I hope to get through the other end to the end of this pandemic with my staff team remaining all um, well, fit and healthy. And basically, I'd like to concentrate more on the specialist cleaning side of the business, infection prevention and control, um, as I think that is going to be predominant now in everyone's life on an ongoing basis. So the waste removal is part and parcel of that with the infectious waste being you know, part of the business. So I just hope to keep everyone fit, healthy and keep going as we are. Mm. You know. And let's certainly hope so. I mean, it's um, like I said, there's a real silver lining that that's one side of the business. I mean, prevention is going incredibly well. And I think that's going to be the real focus of the business as well, probably for the next uh, few months to come. And, you know, Jim, yeah. I think it would be great, given how informative it's been today discussing uh, this issue, to actually even have you back on the programme in the next few months, just to see what stage we're at then and see how the business is getting on as well. Yeah, that's that's big delightful. No problem at all. I think that'd be fantastic, Jim. In the meantime, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme this morning with us. It's a shame we don't have more time, otherwise we could go on throughout the entire morning, I'm sure. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Jim, before we do touch base again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. No, we certainly aren't. So thank you very much again for having me on and have a good day. That was Jim Gildy speaking, founder, MD and owner of Rubbish Clearance and Waste Removal Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry. We, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.